Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. This week, we welcome Nathan Mill onto the Golders podcast. Nathan is the head of medical services at St. Helens Rugby League Club and has previously worked at Huddersfield and with the England Rugby League setup. He talks about how they had to adjust and adapt on the return to play, what he believes are important human qualities in sporting environments, and much more. Nath, welcome and thanks for being with us today on the Golders podcast. Before we do dive into the conversation, can you just give us a little bit of a, a background into your story? Yeah, of course, can. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, so, so basically, physiotherapy-wise, pretty conventional in, in education, straight from sixth form college into physiotherapy at, at Manchester University. Went through three years of university, obviously interested, always been interested in sport. Um, went through some rotational placements whilst uh, coming out of university at hospital for a period of about three to four years. And then was really fortunate to start a part-time role with St. Helens back in 2003, a long time ago, and I was an academy physio. And then following that, went on to work full-time in sport at the, sort of, if you will, uh, the opposite code of rugby and rugby union. Uh, in 2009 with, with then the Leeds Carnegie team and then came back to rugby league at Huddersfield Giants in 2010. Worked with the head coach there, Nathan Brown, um, and then went with Nathan back to St. Helens where things all started in sport in 2012. And then since that time, as uh, I've been at St. Helens in, in a couple of different capacities. Initially as a, as a head of rehab and, and rehab coordinator working alongside a fantastic team um, of staff and then, and then now as a, as a head of medical services at St. Helens for the last five years. Yeah, so in, in a nutshell, sorry to carry on, but that's, that's my sort of journey within physiotherapy and within sport. So as, as a physio, I know we've we spoke during, during the COVID lockdown, I know the sport got shut down. You're back up and playing. You're now... Five games in, yep. um, five wins from five games as well, and, and performing very well. Now, things are very different, and I know you've mentioned it to us previously, but how have the staff and the players adapted to accommodate the return to training and playing following the lockdown and, and everything that's gone on with COVID? Yeah, um, where do I start? This, I think first and foremost, credit's got to go down to what, I'm sure every team's had the same kind of situation, but credit's got to go down to the players and what they've done during this period of time. They've been absolutely outstanding with growing as individuals to run their basically run their own programme and their own package of, of athletic development through a 16-week period. Um, obviously, alongside the advice that, that, that all the staff members and team members at the club has given, so our head of performance, Matty Daniels, has been unbelievable at making sure that Everyone's got an element of understanding on what they need to do. It's difficult during that period because 
everyone's in, in a furlough position as well. So we've got to be very mindful of that so we can advise and we can do what we can do, but we can't overstep the mark. But I mean, testament to the players and how they've responded during a, a period of time of adversity and uncertainty, both from a, a playing perspective and a financial perspective. And then when they've come back in um, with very short lead time, we had three weeks before the first game, um, they've, they've really hit the ground running and that's down to their preparation. And obviously at the minute, up to now, that's been uh, seen as successful on the field as well and hopefully that does continue. Coaching staff, when, when we come back in, have, have been extremely understanding about what kind of physical and psychological state the players have been in and, and they've matched what we expected with the players with a programme um, that has optimised their cognitive challenge so we don't overload them and then also the physical side of things that, that, that Matt is in, in control of on the field so I think as a, as a team as a team effort with the staff we've respected and understood what, what the players have, have been through and coming into and tried to be as respectful as we can but still prepare them as best we can for the trials and tribulation of contact sport and that, Nathan, would be the complexity of not being able to train as a group must have been and, and must have provided many challenges from the dynamics perspective. Absolutely. I put myself in the player's position during that period and I thought, how, how would I motivate myself in a situation where you're locked down at home to get up and train individually without your teammates, without that? Um, I mean, We've talked in, in detail before, Keith, about the, the importance of competition and the importance of being competitive against yourself, first and foremost, and bettering yourself, but then also being competitive against your teammates and it drives a really healthy competitiveness within the team. How difficult must it have been for them to be able to still drive themselves and motivate themselves to train is beyond me. So, again... I think it's it's testament to, to our playing group. I'm sure other playing groups and other coaching staff would say exactly the same about their players too. But it but it really does it, it put things into perspective to me on what kind of um, on what kind of group of people we've got at the club. So yeah, it was uh, to to be able to self motivate and do what they did during that period was outstanding. Hmm. You mentioned about the playing group there, Nate, and of course being you being the first team physio of Super League Grand Final winners, St. Helens. We had to look into the specifics of what your job entails. Uh, what does it entail? What, what are you doing when, uh, in terms of the preparation just prior to training? And obviously, you, we're back into the games programme now. How does that look for you? Yeah, I think, uh, well, big, bigger picture, first and foremost, probably my, my role is to predominantly as a medical department, as a team, we, we aim to hopefully try and provide a prevention type program as best we can. We know that obviously injuries, unfortunately, in elite sport are inevitable. Um, otherwise, I'd be out of the job. So they are inevitable. And we can help resist injuries through a prevention program. Um, and then secondly to that, when injuries do occur, probably our, our second major role within the club is to try and help players rehabilitate physically and psychologically back into a position where they're ready to, to play the game. It's, it's a real team effort, Keith. We've got, 
we've got a, a, a second physio that works alongside myself. Um, and, and we did have a third physio before uh, we came into the COVID break that's, that's gone on to, to work in private practice. So at the minute, there's, there's two physiotherapy staff members that are, that, that are running that program, which is a real challenge because you're still trying to do exactly what you did before with a slightly lesser team to work with. So again, uh, the, the senior physio at the club, Charlie Wilson and, and, and myself really are, are really pushing through to still provide that package that we need to provide to best prepare the players to play the game. I think from an everyday running perspective, so if we go through a normal training day, what we tend to do is anyone within rehabilitation would normally have a quite early start. So they would start pretty early with us individually so we have time to work with them. And then we'd be into treatment of the players that are playing and that are healthy in order to prepare them to train. And then during the period of time that they're training, we'd either have a function on the field to monitor and observe, um, or we'd have a function in the gym to also monitor, observe, and interact where we need to, to in order the lads to get the most out of that particular uh, element of their training. And then after the training's finished, we would have a, a reconnect with any players of particular concern. Um, and then at the end of the day, we'd have a staff meeting where we sit down and discuss the happenings of the day. That could be a three to five minute really informal chat, or it could be a more formal chat where all of us are involved to critique our own performances and to look and see if there's anything that we need to do to try and improve going forward. That could be on a day-to-day basis, or it could be looking at the next week. Um, so yeah, the, the landscape's changed quite considerably, but we're still trying to provide that same package of care to respect the players and ensure that they are best prepared to play the game. Very comprehensive, which I wouldn't expect any other than that. You've got a day-to-day programme, which, of course, the players uh, will be working from and towards. There's an outcome at the end of the week where you're now currently playing. Uh, but what are the biggest challenges that you face as being from the medical point of view, but what's the biggest challenge that you currently face? Obviously with the COVID, what are the ones that you go, I need to, I need to become a little bit crisper, a little bit sharper. What needs to be tightened up? If it, if it had to be tightened up, what would that be? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think uh, probably the way that, if, if, if I answer it in this perspective, since returning, following the COVID break, there's quite a huge emphasis on obviously medical health and well-being and, and monitoring any changes and fluctuations with somebody's, not, not just the individual athlete, but we have to appreciate the wider picture, which is the athlete's household, their immediate family, and having a care factor for not just the player and the player's well-being, but ensuring that they feel safe with their family's well-being and medical health. So there's a lot of questionnaires that take place prior to training we're very observant with anything that may influence certain decisions to bring players into the environment or to keep players away from the environment um, and we're really fortunate that coaching staff and, and and our whole staff as a as a whole entity have been outstanding with appreciating and accepting that this is a change that we have to have to comply with anything that may fluctuate in order to protect the safety and well-being of the players and players' family. So, I mean, you can get a phone call at 11 o'clock at night now with somebody that's got a sniffle, whereas seven months ago, that would never have been something that a player would have recognised as an issue. 
Um, and we've got to encourage that. We, we can't stop that from happening. We have to be very much uh, open-minded to the smallest amount of medical symptoms to ensure that we're respecting this condition and we're respecting our players' welfare and safety. So I think that, that has changed. It, it's, it's, it's become not that it wasn't an on-call service. We were always there for players' welfare and safety, but it's definitely become a greater amount of um, emphasis about what we do and, and how we deliver our standards, really. I think the, the testing side of things with, with COVID has been really challenging. Um, as we know, with, with antigen testing, as you go through, we want to make sure that, our, that the whole team and squad are uh, clean uh, so that then when they come into competition or when they're coming into to interact with other people and with other teams, we're reducing and mitigating that chance and risk of cross-infection to the best of our ability. I think it's got to be said, Keith, that our, our doctors at the club are part-time and they've been unbelievable. So their medical care and attention and the amount of detail they've gone into to, to make sure that those lines of communication are open always and how they've, they've set up our medical component of, of COVID return has been, has been nothing short of amazing. So both work in NHS capacity, one GP practice and one in a hospital as a consultant in respiratory medicine. So they're on the front line as well and they're seeing a lot of what happened over the last four or five months. Um, and they've had the time to deliver the package they deliver for us. So, yeah, it's, we, we're so fortunate to have the team of people working for us that's enabled everyone to buy into that product as well because we know how important every one of the individuals are that, that form a cog in the wheel. So with that being said, Nath, I think the COVID restrictions and everything that's happened has changed some of your roles. So some things are now more important than what they would have been a few months ago. But if you had to define the key roles of a rugby league physio, what would they be? Um, good question. I think the, the, key, the key roles that we do if we look at what our sort of our, our ideas of what we, we go through pre-COVID and now we're still the same. We're, we're still aiming to prevent injury. We're still aiming to prepare the team and be part of that preparation to prepare the team. And then also in treatment and rehabilitation of injury following that occurrence. But I think the, the change has now been a, a true focus on the, the players feeling valued and safe in this current climate so being accessible enough where they can have a conversation about anything that they, they may be concerned about, whether that's their own well-being or whether that's potentially a vulnerable family member, whether it's just a general query about their children, for example. We have to be accessible and open to making sure that we reduce their concern and anxiousness and anxiety. So I think that has been a big change of being available I think we were always available, but we've got to really be mindful now of being available for these guys that are taking all the risk, really, because they're the ones that, that are the product that go on the field. They're the ones that people want to see and watch on TV. And they're the ones that take the risk with regards to coming in contact with the players. So I think that availability has been key in both myself and, and Charlie's role uh, and also the doctor role at the club. Um, and... I think we've been really crisp and clear with our communication. We've got to be un unbelievably together and, and connected to ensure that everyone knows what's going on. 
it's it's amazing uh, with changes in COVID policy within our sport, and I'm sure every other sport's the same. Uh, I've never heard the phrase ever-changing landscape used as much, and, and it's absolutely true. Within a 24-hour period, according to either government guidelines, Public Health England, or even your local authority, things can change with the way that you deliver your package, and you have to be adaptable to that. So again, credit to the players, credit to the staff to understand that at the drop of a hat, we've got to change training time. At the drop of a hat, we've got to train in small groups. At the drop of a hat, we've got to you know, restrict contact to make sure that we don't get anyone that cross-infects if there is anyone that's got potential symptoms. So I reckon, I mean, probably I've, I've gone through three key things there uh, with, with regards to what, what has definitely changed, which is the adaptability of the squad and us, the communication between all of us that were on the same page and the availability of staff to ensure that players feel like um, they, they can contact us and they can make sure that they, they give us any concerns that they may have, whether it's about them or about their immediate family. The professionalism from from all concerned, it's a big holistic approach taking place. It's 360 where you've got the medical staff and obviously the coaching staff are equally the welfare and safety of the players is paramount. But in, in regards to all of that, the players being adaptable and adjusting to the circumstance. At a point, they've got to the training for an end, the training for an outcome, and that is to play games. Do you find working with the lads where sometimes you've got to make decisions about them playing or not playing? Are they pretty good at self-regulating that? Or have there been times where you've had to intervene and say you're not fit? And if that has taken place, some of those conversations must be quite difficult for you. Yeah, um, great question, Keith. I, I think where, again, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm putting a lot of pressure on our players there because I'm, I'm talking very positive about them, but I'm, I'm talking positively for, for the reason that they're absolutely brilliant from a point of view of self-regulation and with injury. I think they normally, t- they normally tell me. You know, we, we apply our guidelines. We, we, we look at certain, you know, investigations we may get, such as MRI scans. We look at clinical assessments that we may have with the players. We look at specialist appointments that we'll have with consultants. And we'll form a rough guide of when a particular injury will be back to where it needs to be to be able to play. Um, but ultimately, players tend to, to dictate a lot of that at the tail end. But there's key parameters that we'll always look at. So with every injury that we'll have, there'll be objective markers, whether that's, for example, strength, whether that's movement, whether that's to do with the control, if it's a lower limb injury, balance, all the rest of the kind of things that we look at. We'll have clear objective markers of when they've hit uh, to dictate improvement and dictate progression through rehabilitation. We're also really fortunate to have uh, things like external metrics like GPS or lads will wear sensors on the back of the shirt and that will register what kind of speeds they've hit, what kind of distances they've gone. Um, and then we can compare that to what they've got with their own individual metrics previously before they're injured and measurements before they're injured. And then also what we look at in the game is things called worst case scenarios. So what we expect them 
to potentially do in a worst case scenario. So then we've got a really clear idea of what we need from the players to be able to dictate that they're ready to return to play. But again, there has been times probably in the most recent past at the tail end of last year where we had players who were playing in semi-finals and in grand finals that the problem probably wouldn't have hit those marks of being able to return through musculoskeletal injury, this would be. But it was a conversation with them in the centre and with all the coaching staff around that conversation, but with them at the centre of the, the decision to make a choice on whether they were right and ready to play. And if, if they were in a position to play and it was safe to do so without increasing their risk of further injury, or increasing the risk of extending the injury, then their decision is is, is down to, to them. That's what it comes down to. And I think a lot of players within rugby league and, and well, any sport, but especially in our sport where that contact element's involved, they, they often know their bodies better than you know their bodies. And they'll be able to tell you quite truthfully whether they feel that they're ready and they can take the... Uh, the challenges of a, of a rugby league game. So like I said, probably semi-finals and grand finals time, that's that's near enough always the case. When they've got through 30 games in a season, there's hardly anyone in that 17 players that will reach a grand final field that will be saying, oh yeah, I feel fantastic. But there are certain players that definitely are carrying more than others. And again, it's an athlete-centred approach. Does the athlete feel confident? Is that conversation going to happen? And then we can apply our our own practical mindset, whether it's a coaching mind or whether it's a, a, a physical mind from myself or from the performance, head of performance on whether that particular player can get through a game and that decision is then made, yes or no. More recently, with the squad of players that we've got, I don't think we've had to make too many decisions to rule out players. I think our guidelines have, have become quite clear on what they need to do to be able to achieve the status of being ready to return. So I don't think there's ever been a conversation where we've needed to be in a conflict or confrontation setting where a player thinks they're ready and we don't. And I reckon that really starts with communicating where the player is up to at the start of the injury and getting all the relevant information in line to ensure that everyone knows where they stand before we go into that rehabilitation process. I think if you get that wrong, that's when you can lead to confrontation and conflict towards the tail end of the rehab process and one person feeling that they're ready and then the other person, whether it's that's the physio or the, or, or the player, feeling that they're not ready. The question of whether you've had to inform players that they're still injured and not able to play, but in, the, in rugby league, it's a Warriors sport the tough athletes you have to hold them back more than you have to wind them up to get them going can you tell us i know there were some in i know there were some in the grand final last year some pretty severe injuries where players played out but can you talk about what typical injuries you deal with and now especially with covid guidelines how do you treat the players yeah it's um yeah so with regards to the the, the first of the injuries in the grand final I mean, it was quite well publicised. We, um, we had a player that dislocated his shoulder in, in minute 42. So he basically played the remaining part and pretty much the full part of the second half. 
um, having just followed a, a dislocation. So uh, other players in that grand final, fractured ribs and um, a knee injury, a ligament knee injury. Um, and, and all of them managed to complete and finish the game. So, I mean, from a point of view of the, the players that we're dealing with, we're dealing with an, an, an unbelievable, tough, resilient, physical mentality that enables them to, to get through the most horrendous pain to be able to, to still do a really challenging job role within a contact sport. So, yeah, we're, we're very, these guys are real tough people. Common injuries, which we tend to see. Um, shoulder injuries, quite common. Obviously, hamstring injuries are quite common, as they are in any running and acceleration sport. Knee injuries, because the contact nature of, of, of where players come in. And, and probably the, the biggest injury, the most uh, well-researched injury most recently, is concussion. And I think concussion could be a, a completely separate topic that we can, we can touch on in brief now. It's, it's changed dramatically with regards to our approach to concussion and how we should treat and manage concussion and for the better to ensure that players' welfare and safety is paramount. I think before, like in probably 10, 15 years ago, and maybe even more recently, players just sort of used it as a badge of honour. So if you get knocked out in a game and you fall on the floor and you've obviously got a head injury, you're a bit disorientated, you might have been very temporarily unconscious... If a player gets up and carries on playing, it's almost been rewarding the past, that behaviour. It's always, almost been a, oh, he's tough him. He'll, he'll carry on. And I think it's such a positive change in what we're delivering. And educationally, probably coaching staff have, have taken that on unbelievably well, especially the coaching staff that I've been really fortunate to work with on the importance of respecting the condition and the importance of going through due process for a return to play and players are now understanding of how important that particular condition is to respect and it isn't just a badge of honour that you can get up off the floor of and carry on you do need to be honest with your reports as it could have quite a large effect on not just that particular game and on your future as a rugby league player but also your future as a human being and what happens after the sport and the RFL as well as other governing bodies have been fantastic in in employing policy, graded return to play, what we need to walk out for, and um, things like video analysis on pitch side, which has been really, really important to review and recognise things that we may miss, because we're only human. So even if you've got three or four pairs of eyes on a field, you can still miss very subtle movements after a contact incident could indicate a bigger injury. And we've got now at every home, wherever, every home game for us, we've got our HIA video analysis. So HIA stands for head injury analysis. We've got one for our home games as well as other teams will have one for their home games. And they'll work for both sides to recognise any behavioural patterns that might be indicative of a head injury. Um, and then we can look back at that and remove a player at any time if we're suspicious that something may have happened. Historically, physios being pitched side during warm-ups, Nathan. What are you looking out for and why? Yeah, I reckon it's, it's really important, and this is my own personal opinion, whether the physios would agree with me, I don't know, but it's really important at that critical time during warm-up pre-game for a physio to be pitched side and, and, and be observing. And I think 
primarily, Keith, I think our role is risk assessment. So we're looking for any, any things that could potentially have an impact on a, on a player's ability to play. So are they moving correctly? Are there players returning back from injury that we might want to monitor through that period of, of warm-up? We'll be pretty confident with what they've achieved during their rehab period, but it is nice just to see them move before they start to play. Um, and we can have a positive impact if there's anything there that we're not quite comfortable with. Um, we, we risk assess for things, for ob- any type of obstacles or any type of equipment that may be in the way. On a game day, there's 10 to 15 balls getting kicked around left, right and centre. And, and I've seen it before where players are stepping backwards and don't see what's underneath their feet. And it only takes one step on a rugby ball and you've rolled an ankle and you've got a potential problem. So it does seem like a really small thing and a thing in elite sport which you shouldn't have to really be worried about but it is something that absolutely can happen so it's a risk assessment process and we're there to to assist as well so we're there to assist with any staff member that may need us to to help out at any time if there is something that needs doing and we're also there to assist predominantly the players with anything that they may require to allow them to best perform in the game Um, and that could be from a drink of water to a to a bit of DP on a hamstring, you know, it's uh, it's not unusual to be whacking on a little bit of cream pre-game and make sure the player's ready to play. And again, that's a little bit of an old school thing, but if it helps them perform, then that's what we're there to do. We're there to ensure that those players are ready to perform at their best. Um, and like we mentioned before, with regards to the Super League Grand Final and players playing for injury, they take the greatest risk and they're the product so we've got to be there to provide that for them. So during this preparation, this build-up towards what is, without a shadow of a doubt, a warrior sport, there's no hiding places when you play rugby league. It's, it's high impact, it's hard, it's a tough man sport. And during the warm-ups, you'll also have other auxiliary staff. Are any messages indicated, communicated, not indicated, communicated between yourselves and I'll watch the backs. I'll go watch the forward. Does that take place? Absolutely. So there's a there's a preordained plan between all staff members on the field as to who they're watching, what they're doing. For example, myself and the, and the other physio, Charlie, will do separate ends of the team. So one will take the forwards, one will take the backs, and we'll just observe that small pod and group. We're also in, in communication via um, our little earpiece with the doctors that are in the changing rooms. So if anything does need to be organised in the changing rooms prior to players arriving back in, that can be pre-organised with, with them so that it means more efficient use of our time when we arrive back in the changing room after warm-up. Yeah, I think that, that the warm-up process is, has to be slick. And, and again, the pre-planning of coaching staff and of our performance staff is critical with ensuring the fluency of that process. Uh, and that adds to a player's psychology and physiology of being ready to take the field to play. So during the games itself, you, when I say you, physios are seen jogging on the field of play to hand out water bottles. In those situations, what specifically are you listening for or looking out for during those interactions? Yeah, uh, good question, David. I reckon 
the, the first thing we're going on the field to do is obviously we, we, we've got water there to, to hydrate, whether or not it has that much of an effect physically or physiologically. Obviously, definitely psychologically, players having a drink of water and making sure they've had that wetness is, is, is key for them feeling like they're ready to continue. The other thing that I would always look for is any signs of, of fatigue. And they're going to be tired. Obviously, they're going to be very tired because of the game demands. But if there's anything that's unusual with a particular player that may indicate that I need to have more conversation with that player or somebody else needs to have that conversation with a player, whether it's a performance staff member or, or a medical staff member. And then if the player is fatigued, whether we do need to remove them from the field of play, we've got things on the touchline that we can look at what they've done. So they all are wearing GPS, which tracks the player in the game. And we have a sports scientist on pitch side that can look at how much they've done in the game. So they can communicate to, to Matty Daniels, uh, to myself, or to any coaching staff member of any concerns a player may have. I think the other thing is, because it's a contact sport, there's cuts, there's little bits of nicks, there's things that can have an impact on, number one, their ability to continue. So we'll have to patch that up on, on the field. Um, whether that's an ability of them to continue as, a, as, as they don't feel like they can do or whether it's something that a referee may pull up and flag and that could have an impact on the flow of the game so that's a very important thing to observe and to monitor so I'd, I'd probably say biggest thing we do is is just have a look for the fatigue side of things then we look at anything that we might need to observe that we could have impact or input into such as lacerations and any type of physical problem so I'm going to change a little bit here is it right that the club physio is the agony amp for the club? Uh, is it right? I think that's, do you know what? It's my, my, my personality, and I'm sure other physios would say the same. I quite enjoy that, that side of things. I, I quite enjoy getting to know players' uh, backgrounds. I quite enjoy them. I quite, I quite like the idea of them feeling like they can open up to somebody at the club, whether that's me or whether that's Charlie or whether that's another individual at the club. But the physio room is always traditionally a room where truths are exposed and people tend to feel quite comfortable in that room. But, but again, I take that as a bit of a compliment. If they, if they feel comfortable enough around me, then I think that's something that, that really drives that deeper connection between players, staff and players and, and the club that athlete sort of bond is, is, is massive for physios because they have to trust. And if we don't have that deeper connection, I think that trust is sometimes something that, that definitely isn't present when you're returning players back off, off quite a significant injury sometimes. That, that trust is absolutely paramount and, and of massive importance for, for them and for us to have. So I think... Any time where I've got an opportunity to connect with a player outside of the sport in their own life, whether that be a problem from an agony amp perspective or whether it just be chatting about their university course they might be doing, chatting about a new baby that they've had and going through that process, I think that's, that's um, a real key part of our job. Of course, there's some gold nuggets there where you are actually, you're building connection, you're building relationships and you're working in a profession where it's no old bard and, and it's team above self stuff. 
if you if we've got any advice if you've got any advice i'm sure you've got loads of advice for anyone listening who is massively keen to pursue physiotherapy as a profession within sport what advice would you give to them now um really really good question and i think first and foremost that they have to have a a very clear sense of what that is. What is it to be a physiotherapist or any practitioner within a sport environment? And the fact of the matter is, it's tough. It's a really hard career path. It's a, and I say tough in, in the greatest possible sense because by being tough, it's really rewarding. So that is a positive, that's a, it's a massive positive, but be under no illusion that if anyone does want to go into a career in sport, it's time consuming. It's emotionally challenging because you are invested and I think it's important to be invested. And, um, and, it, and it's also challenging on your family and it's a challenge on you know, your life outside of sport. And that's been something where I've been really, really fortunate to have the family support that I've got and, and, and have that sort of separation where it's, it's a, I love my family and love spending time with them, but they understand that sometimes... I might have to take a phone call late at night or I might have to be in early in the morning. That understanding and appreciation is hugely key. I think from a, a clinical and learning perspective, if you're, going to be, if you're going to be happy taking that process and step going into sport and be comfortable with knowing that it is going to be a, a challenge on your time and it is going to be emotionally investing, both from a success and a, and a, and a failure perspective, because I've had a bit of both of that in my, in my career as well. I think the next thing is, is your competence and, and what you're willing to do to be able to get into a position and keep in a position. And, and you've got to be a lifelong learner. You've got to, you've got to have enthusiasm to continue to, to read, continue to develop, continue to keep your ears open and make sure that, if there are things out there that's research-driven and research-based that is different to what your current direction and, and focus is, that you are open to new ideas and you listen to those. I've, I never never stop wanting to stop reading or learning because I think once we stop that, we, we haven't, we, we've lost that drive to be better. We've lost, if we, don't, if we don't continue to learn and we don't continue to develop, how can we expect people that we work with and especially the players to continue to grow. So we have to live that value of wanting to continue to grow. And then probably the last thing is, is within the sport that I work in, especially, I think you've got to be a huge generalist. I think in different sports, there may be more people available within the profession to be more specialist in the role that you do. But I think for anyone who wants to become a physio with a, a large toolbox and expanded experience within various different things, I think rugby league is a sport where it is hugely challenging from that perspective. So you have to be the agony ant. You have to also do the rehab. You have to also do some treatment. You have to also be communicating with specialists. You have to be communicating with coaching staff. You have to be communicating with performance staff. You've got to be communicating with the players. The, the, there is a whole range of things that you're doing. You're not just specialising in one certain area. And that's not to downplay the importance of specialisation either. 
but it's just to say that within rugby league, you will get a very general, expansive experience of physiotherapy. And then sort of I think I've got one more point to make just with what I've just talked about then. That communication stuff, Keith, like, I think my, my one massive development as a human and also as a physio has been an appreciation that your message said once to one person has to be delivered differently to a second person. You cannot expect to be somebody who delivers something information-wise to a player and that same information can be delivered to a head coach in exactly the same way. So, and it is your problem to improve your communication skills, not somebody else's problem to improve their listening skills. So that's just, just something that anyone that's looking to go into sport has to appreciate that everyone's connected at a different level and you have to adjust yourself to be able to make sure you've made your point. Really refreshing answer, Nathan, in regards to all points, all relative, where you've mentioned being a a lifelong learner and being a general physio where you're dealing with soft tissue, you're dealing with uh, musculoskeletal. Is there any cross-fertilisation from sport to sport? So specialising in, say, football, are there any interactions that take place between yourself and uh, physios that work in a different code, in this case football, uh, where, where, where the treatments are similar but slightly different and that you can learn from each other. Is that taking place? Is it an healthy environment to be in in regards to that type of learning? Absolutely. I think there's, there's so much that you can glean from, from other people. And, and also, like, those, I'm pretty fortunate that the physios that I've worked with at our club have, uh, have left the club and gone on to different sports. They've gone to different clubs within the same sport. So I've maintained connection with those individuals. I've also maintained connection with people who I've met on courses and people that I've met throughout my career as a physio that work in football, cricket, all different types of sports and sharing good practice is massive for development, both from a point of view of, of getting it from somebody else, but also from a point of view of sharing your good practice. I think it often by sharing what you've done as a department or within, within the team that you work in, I think it just reaffirms the, the, the job that you're doing. And that could mean reaffirming something that you've thought is brilliant but it could also reaffirm something that you think needs to change. I think one of my biggest flaws in the past has been probably confirmation bias, probably being someone that I would, I've extracted information to be able to prove a point that I think something's been beneficial rather than challenging myself to think, is that the best way to do it? And I think by speaking to other physios, you tend to pick up things and you think, ah, well, in actual fact, the way that they're doing it is probably better than what I'm doing and maybe we need to reflect and look inward to see if there's something that we need to change because ultimately again Keith it comes down to we're only here to provide a service for the, for the players that's what we're here for we are a cog in the wheel um, we, we, we're not we, we've got to make sure that we don't allow ego to stand in our way to develop and deliver the best package for the players and, and probably going back to a previous question you've asked I think 
it comes down to the team mentality. We're a team. We're a team within a team. Everyone plays their part. So you, you're not an individual, and you can't be seen to be looking like that. So working within your team in your department, working with your team within the performance or coaching department, but then also being expansive enough to realise that other people out there may have a different answer, there might be a better answer to yours in different sports, is really important to recognise. So with that being said, how do you see the, uh, the physio profession going in the future? What may change? What may differ? What, what may stay the same? Fundamentally, I feel that what we, what we continue to deliver with regards to prevention and risk mitigation and then also the rehabilitation and treatment side of things and you can lump diagnostics in there as well and clinical examination that that side of it i don't think will change very much i think that will always be a very integral part of what we do as physiotherapists and both professionally and also academically what we learn to do that's the that's the fundamentals that's the nuts and bolts that's what we need to have in our in our clinical um and, and also professional toolbox to be able to deliver. I think where I see it potentially changing is, is, is continuing to know more about if you work in one sport, when you go and you work in another sport, for example, you need to be a learner of the sport that you go into. You need to understand the sport. You can't just apply the same principles that you've applied either in a hospital setting, into a sport setting, or into a sport-to-sport setting. You've got to really appreciate what the sport is and the physical characteristics and the demands of the sport. I think as physios, we're sometimes, not all the time, I think we're getting better at this, but we're sometimes quite narrow-minded with dealing with an MCL injury is an MCL injury or a hammy injury, for example. Hamstring injury is a hamstring injury in rugby and the same hamstring injury is in football. And that's probably true, but then we have to prepare those athletes differently to be able to play, to play the game. So appreciation of the sport is something we need to continue to develop that we're working in. And then that bridge between conventional, traditional physiotherapy, the problem, as in the hamstring, versus the whole body. So when we rehabilitate players or we're involved in that process, we have to understand that they've still got two lungs, they've still got a heart, they've still got you know an arm, two arms and another leg. So we have to make sure that the rest of the body is prepared. So an ability to know about strength and conditioning, an ability to learn more about sports science has to be something that we bridge and has to be something that we continue to learn more about. Do you think there'd be a benefit to have potentially played the game so you know what it's like to get those contacts, the, the range of... Uh, of movements are taking place and particularly when you're running with a ball you're going to be it from all over the place at times and you're feeling that pain that players have gone through well I played rugby union key so I can't really talk because I was an absolutely rubbish rugby union player so I've, I've been I've been relatively successful in the sport that I work in as a physio but I was I was crap at playing the sport uh, no on, on a serious note I don't think it's essential I don't think it's essential. I think there is a lot of very, very good physiotherapists that have never played the sport, that are very successful in the sport they work in. Um, and that goes, to, that goes for performance setting in regards to strength and conditioning sports science as well. I, I do feel we do need to appreciate what, what athletes put themselves through. And I think that's a care factor. That's a, 
it's a knowledge of, of just being really appreciative about these lads go on the field and they get smashed for 80 minutes and then they rock up in training and the fresh as a daisy bouncing around and you're like, wow, I, you know what I mean? I really respect what you boys do. And the same in any other sport as well, because every other sport will have different challenges. And, and, and from a point of view of, of whether the playing side of it helps that, I think it may do. And I think it may offer more appreciation, but I think fundamentally we've got to build that and learn that anyway. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on the fence on that question. I think, do you know what? I'll pose a question to you here. Do you feel as a coach that you're a better coach if you're a better player? I don't think you necessarily need to have played the game. I think you have to have a, this is my personal opinion and for what value you bring. I think you've got more of an appreciation of, like you just said, if you get it, you know you're getting it. But I also have come across coaches that have not played the game at any level and have a depth. So I'm not going to sit on the fence. I'm going to say I think you would have there is more more understanding in, in if you've had a if you played the game. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean you understand the game. What do you think? I reckon we've we've both been really fortunate to have conversations with uh, with coaches in the past and, and with, with a Saints coach that was obviously successful last year who by his own admittance didn't he did play. He did play at first grade level, um, but he probably didn't have the career of other other players that have gone on to coach, but was probably um, a fundamental leader at the club. So, yeah, I, I do feel, it's like you said, and, you, and you're absolutely right, I think an appreciation of the game is probably the biggest way I could say it. I think a genuine appreciation from my own role and from physiotherapy, you need to appreciate what the characteristics of the game are and what demands of the game bring and then what the players are having to deal with, uh, we have to understand that. And if you've not been involved in the sport, that's something you definitely need to learn, whether that's in rugby, football, cricket, or any other sport. And I think with that, if being a footballer automatically made you a, a good coach, then Premier League managers that have played before wouldn't be getting sacked or they would be successful in every role they went into. Now, do I think it can add credibility at the start? Yes, I do. I think you're, if you've played 500 games in the Premier League and then you go into a, a coaching role, it can add credibility to what you're doing. You may have an understanding or a better understanding than those who may have not have played previously. But like you've just mentioned about your experience last year, a coach, they may be able to understand the game, and that's brilliant. They may be understand all the nuances, but if they can't communicate that clearly and they don't understand how to deal with people, it makes no difference what they know. Um, and I think that's that's why you, you will get coaches or ex-players, sorry, that become coaches that struggle. You're in a different field now. It's the same sport, but you're in a different field. You're now dealing with things from a different angle. So... I'm going to echo a little bit. I think I think it can help, but I don't think you have you had to have done it. And we've seen it in rugby and we've seen it in football where there'll be coaches now that 
haven't played the game at all or they've played it at a, at a low, lower level but are now unbelievably successful because their understanding can grow through their ability to educate themselves and to be around good people. But the way that they manage people and the way that they can communicate is absolutely first class. Yeah. There's, I forget the author, so I'm not going to give him any credit here, but there's, there's something called the trust equation, which I think is perfect for anyone in any field working, working in sport or, or any field for that matter. And, and that's sort of looking at, if, in order to create trust, you mentioned the word, the credibility. Now, credibility can be built around experience. Credibility can be built around academic ability and what you've got. For, for me, my credibility might be a physiotherapy degree. And then your reliability, what you do, or what you say is what you do. And then I think the other part of the equation is intimacy. So having that care factor, having that ability to, to get a bit deeper with your players and your athletes drives that. And that, that comes above making sure that you're self-aware, you're really, you're knowing who you are and you're knowing how you fit. And I think any coach that I've seen, any person that I've seen that's a successful player as well, and I could reel off names for you at the club at the minute that, that are like that, display all those four values. And yeah, experience is, is one of those that fits into it, but you, you've got to hold the whole package to be successful. So... I mean, the captain of our club comes to mind straight away. So James Roby displays values of all those four areas. He's got credibility in what he's done in the sport. He's reliable. He's Mr. Reliable. He wants to learn about teammates and he wants to learn about staff members. Um, And he's also extremely self-aware. He knows completely who he is and what he does. So come back to questioning me, am I doing what I should do? And am I displaying those values that I hold so greatly? And if I'm not doing, then I need to reflect on whatever that particular decision was or whatever that situation was and deliver it slightly differently. And I've gone off at my usual tangent there, Keith and David. I'm sorry, man. No, no, I, no, no. I think what it delves into, we're still on point. It's all relative. It, it revolves around a certain characteristic to be able to do a job to the best of their ability. And it, it's around your values and what you believe. So you don't necessarily need to have played something or have experienced something to be very good at it. You just have the you've got to have that wanton curiosity to become the very best at doing whatever that profession is. And all they'll then do is find the answers from somewhere. They'll ask people who were perceived to be the expert in that field at that moment in time. And all we then do is we adopt things and then we adapt it to then meet our personal need. So if you played 200 times for England, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be very good at doing something else, uh, you know, physio in this case, because of that tactile nature or lack of ta- being tactile. You have to have a certain characteristic. And it and leeches from every single pore of your body, as we've found out tonight, and on many other occasions, particularly when we've had our conversations, physios in your blood. So... You've got to have that interest to want to improve things and be curious about how to actually become more efficient and equally become more effective, ultimately, to, to drive their outcome for the players. And that is to keep them on the pitch fit and healthy. Yeah. And sometimes to the detriment of players, you know, when they, don't, when they want to be playing, you've got, to, you've got to safeguard all of those longer-term injuries that could 
probably curtail the playing career. Now it's, it's been absolutely fantastic again, and we, uh, David and I, have such a, a wonderful warmth towards you as a person, and and the way that you you answer the questions. Uh, I've got to thank you on behalf of myself and David for creating this time that you've come out. You've you've you don't have to be. You've had the kids somewhere in the background with a with a popcorn, keeping them nice and quiet. But thanks very much again. We we well, thoroughly enjoyed it. No, I did. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.